Ryan, I've worked with a lot of contractors over my years in the construction industry, and they are a hardworking lot. They take pride in their work and in their businesses, and it's only right that they look for ways to protect what they do and what they have. Exactly, Todd. And now with TrueLook's job site surveillance, contractors can stop worrying about protecting that hard work. Their Five Diamond Certified Monitoring Center provides 24-7 peace of mind. And with TrueLook's intelligent motion alerts, contractors set their cameras to watch their job sites when they aren't there. If the software detects a threat, TrueLook will alert emergency services too. Contractors can protect their work and equipment with TrueLook. Visit TrueLook.com for a free, no-obligation quote today. Welcome to the Construction Disruption Podcast, where we uncover the future of design, building, and remodeling. Welcome to Construction Disruption. I'm Seth Heckeman of Isaiah Industries, manufacturer of specialty metal roofing and other building materials. And today my co-host is Ryan Bell. Ryan, how are you doing today? Hey, Seth. I am doing well. How are you? Doing really well. So thanks for, uh, yeah, tag teaming this with me. Really looking forward to our guest today. Uh, that guest is Matt DeBara, fourth generation Mason and owner of DeBara Masonry, serving Los Angeles, California, as well as co-founder of the Contractor Consultants, a full-service consulting firm serving the construction industry. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Really looking forward to the conversation. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. So, wow, fourth generation Mason. Uh, that's pretty cool legacy in your family. Would love to uh, hear more about that story and uh, then how that led to you following in them into the construction industry. Yeah, well, I'd say I was born into it, but that's a little obvious, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, you know, my family's been been in construction for as, as far as we can trace it back. It actually goes further than that, but wow, very much the blue-collar American dream. Both great-grandfathers came from Italy to America. Um, you know, they wanted a better life. They bought land. They worked menial jobs, and they just built literally their homes from the ground up. So made a little money, framed the first floor. They lived in the basement while they built the rest of the floors. Um, so very much like that true grit, uh, American dream story. And there's a joke in the family, which is that we became contractors when we worked for people who spoke English. Cause at the time they lived in an Italian section when they broke out and, uh, my grandmother would tell me stories about how, you know, she'd try and translate the, the contracts from Italian to English so that they could, you know, communicate with customers. And that's our humble beginnings. And, and now obviously a much more established grown company, but very much humble roots. Wow, that's powerful. Such a yeah, great legacy of resilience and hard work and all those things that then um, set the example for how you want to be and move forward. So what did that look like? You growing up, were you involved as early as you can remember? And then what was that transition to then ultimately choosing your invest your career there too? Well, I always grew up admiring what my dad did. He always took photos and he'd show me pictures and I thought it was cool to build things and see the before and after. And uh, I couldn't wait to go out there and work. I had a lot of energy as a kid. And uh, I started when I was nine. That was my first day on the job. And my dad was smart because my first project was to pick up trash on the job site. And <clears throat> I was talking to somebody about this about a week ago, but it's so funny because doing that taught me humility, right? And picking up all this trash, but it also taught me to be a clean Mason and a clean, you know, 
project manager and obviously business owner later. Uh, so it, my dad had all these dual lessons and things that I didn't pick up. Some of them I'm still figuring out 20 years later where it's like he did that as well as this. Um, but it was a, it was very much just a, here's a black trash bag, go around, talk to the electricians, the plumbers, uh, the HVAC guys and anything they have that you need to pick up, do it. And then I graduated to sorting rocks after that. And it's been a steady climb, steady climb up in the, in the industry. Cool to hear that your dad came home with that pride and then that pride just didn't, you know, uh, instilled in you too. Cause it seems like a story common in our industry is, okay, it's hard work. You takes a lot of grit, go out, work in the elements, uh, you know, and put food on the table for your family that way. And there's a lot of folks that seem to then aspire for their kids to earn their own living a little bit differently, but that, you know, um, not having that same perspective and being just as proud to then come in yourself. That's, that's super cool. Yeah. I mean, we didn't, we, it was interesting. So I, we had a family rule that passed down. So my great grandfather's to my grandfather, my father, my uncle and me, which was, you had to learn the business, but you didn't have to stay in the business. So that was the rule of my dad. He's like, you will learn this. He's like, but if you want to be a doctor, a lawyer, he's like, you want to do whatever it is that your heart desires. He's like, I don't care, but you will learn what it means to work with your hands and build things and see that. And I already wanted it. So it wasn't really hard, but it was interesting because, you know, I, I, I learned it. And then later in life, it was like, that was all I wanted to come back to. You know, I'm in college and I'm, you know, I had opportunities and internships, but I, I just wanted to work in the family business. So it was, it was very much that freedom where I knew I could take those opportunities, but then the desire to not want to do that, which made it nice for us. So I know I did want to touch on that, um, uh, had it uh, planned for a little bit later, but you mentioned college. I thought that was interesting where um, kind of unique for a, a unique element of your story for someone that did get birthed into this business and has been around forever, but then did ultimately go uh, that college route as well. And you got a degree in UMass from construction management. Um, how is that? Has has that been of great benefit? Would you recommend kind of going off and getting some more formal education just in this industry when there's so many points of entry without it, it seems like we're relegated to that. If you don't want the college route, start thinking about construction, but would love your perspective. Yeah. I mean, my story was a little unique because my great grandfathers knew home building, they knew construction, but they didn't know the applied principles. Like my, I remember sizing fireboxes with my grandfather and he's like, you got to make it two inches wider. And I'm like, why? And he's like, you just do. And so <laughs> they knew they didn't know the applied science behind it, but they were geniuses when it came to making things work. And so it, it kind of, I think, passed down a little bit of an insecurity with my dad, who was always like, I knew the stuff, but I, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't open a textbook and tell you the the reasons why. Like I'd mix a batch of mortar and my dad would be like half a scoop of sand more. And I'm like, where is the rules? <laughs> for, like, how am I going to figure this out? And so I think that seeded my foundation for college because I wanted to understand much like when I went to a vocational high school and I learned the different types of mortar, why some of the things my grandfathers did actually worked, um, you know, like the, the applied sciences behind it. Um, it. So it made me curious in terms of end result. I made good connections. Um, you know, I walked on a union job when I was a sophomore in college. They were building, they were doing stonework. And I walked by and I was like, you got the Ashler pattern wrong. And they're like, what do you know? And I was like, yeah, you got to flip these. I'm like, you're longer than four feet here. I can tell because the rest of the wall. And he's like, what do you know about this stuff? <laughs> and I said, well, give me a trial and I'll show you. And so I ended up laying some stone and they hired me. So I was doing union stonework while I was in school. So I made connections at Proximity is Power. Uh, but in terms of the degree itself, I mean, it wasn't something I leveraged 
more the experience and, and the projects we did than the degree. Comes back to the benefit of the both and and having that, yeah, uh, all that information at your disposal and obviously has then propelled you where you are today. So coming out of college and getting back into the family business, I'm sure you kept leaning on all that experience of of the family. But, you know, undoubtedly, like anybody would who's passionate about it, come in with fresh eyes and energy and start looking around and start getting some visions of what could be what could be different or innovated and start start making some changes. Um, you know, what what were some of those ways that once you started coming into the business and thinking, uh, looking at everything through your eyes that you yeah, started uh, changing things? This is what I think is the single hardest but biggest opportunity in businesses, especially family businesses, but any any company is figuring out what things you get rid of and and basically destroy to allow for innovation versus what things become golden pillars in your company. And this was really difficult because we had things that my great grandfathers did that passed down. And some of those things, it was like sifting through and being like, okay, where's the gold nuggets? The like, for example, we had one saying, which was treat customers like they're your neighbors. That's what my grand, they worked for neighbors, right? When they started. So we like that adage is gold, right? Never try and retire off any one single project. My grandfather told me that when I was nine and a half years old, he sat me down. So do you want to know one of the most important things? You'll never get rich off one customer um, and treat a $1 job the same way you would a million dollar project. That one tip has made me millions of dollars, millions. I mean, I've landed multi-million dollar projects by fixing, you know, a $300 thing for a client and they see the attention and care. And then they're like, well, you did this so well. I can't imagine on this, you know, church restoration, that's a million bucks that you're not going to go above and beyond. So sifting through these, these adages, like for us, the big one was um, adding in technology, adding in marketing, but not diluting the brand promise and the customer interaction. Like, you know, not going so far, like we automate things, but there's still a personal touch. I mean, if you call the office, you're going to get an answer within, you know, three seconds is going to be a person. Uh, they're knowledgeable. So if you call up and you, you're talking about the products and services, it's not, oh, well, we'll get back to you or we don't know. It's like that foundational knowledge. But that I would say to anyone listening, like that is the gold. And I've it, it comes with experimentation. So, you know, we, we'd get rid of something, measure it, keep an eye on it. Ooh, that actually didn't work. Like, but that's one of the biggest differentiators for, for us over the years in terms of, I can actually chart the growth of the business when we implement something and it's like, boom, we, we up leveled. I love that. It's like finding the golden nuggets, the good stuff that you want to keep and making sure you're not having the golden calves around, you know, the idol that's, uh, yeah, holding you back and, um, not, you know, preventing that, that innovation. So you mentioned technology, you mentioned marketing, you know, I think that's probably, Marketing, especially, is a, a big one for a lot of family businesses that come in, start up, working for neighbors, just sort of a word of mouth referral, you know, sort of model. Um, it, obviously, you've had to implement and, and expand beyond that to to grow to where you are today. What? Uh, how did that start? What What does that mix look like for you now? For me in particular, I realized. I mean, you know, I started picking up trash, as I mentioned earlier. So this has been a graduation Mason, right? Then foreman, then running projects and, and the like. But when I became the true business owner, I realized that I'm kind of like the captain of the ship. And the more levers I have, the better captain I can be. So I need data, optics, and levers. I need control. So, you know, I looked at areas of the business where I didn't, didn't have control. Word of mouth advertising was not a lever I could turn on or off. 
right? So if my team is like, hey, we're running low on leads, I can't be like, let's crank up that word of mouth lever <laughs> and really get more leads, you know? So I just started looking at, because I, I didn't have a business background. So I just started looking at things from a common sense perspective of like, if I'm the cho- trusted leader, you know, of the team, my job is to help see problems before they happen, right? So I need optics, but I also need control. I need levers. It's like having a ship that can only turn to the left. You know, it's like, if you can only turn to the left, you're, you've made your job a lot more difficult than if you can turn in any direction. So I looked at areas for us in particular, to be specific, one of the areas was, was job flow. Like if I said, you know, if I needed to get four more projects of this size tomorrow, could I do it? If I needed to get more commercial work tomorrow, could I do it? If I needed to hire six people tomorrow, could I do it? And so I started looking at areas where I did or didn't have these levers. Mm-hmm. And then I started also looking at optics. Like, for example, if you know I wanted to know how much money I made on a project, could I do it? If I wanted to understand quarterly or annually what good uh, investing decisions I should make, how would I do that? And so for me, not being a business person, I just looked at it as common sense, that pilot analogy of like, where are areas where I don't have, and I, I almost play a little game right? Like I mentioned earlier, it's like, you know, I got to hire six more people. Am I confident I can do that? And if I'm not, I'm like, Ooh, there's a potential weakness in my business. And so I just chart those points. And then I start to see, Oh, I don't actually have control of my marketing or my financial forecasting really isn't good. If, if I had to buy a piece of equipment tomorrow, do I know whether or not that's a good idea? If I can't answer that, then there's something in my financials that I don't have. So that's how, how me as a layman was starting to understand business. Did that philosophy, was that inspired by something or did that come from somewhere? Or is that just kind of how you figured it out on your own in your head? It came from jobs. Like I, I started, I'll give you the best example I can give. I was, uh, I was interning for a big construction company and I was sitting in at a meeting and they had the site super engineer. They had all of these executive teams. They were trying to figure out this massive crane operation. They had to bring a crane in. They had to crane a, uh, this massive, uh, at the time it was like a religious statue, huge. It was a, it was a logistical nightmare. And I remember listening and they had figured out they were charting the wind, the weather. I mean, they had thought of everything. Right. And I remember thinking, uh, and I went to my direct report who was like a junior site super, I think at the time I said, can I ask a silly question? He was like, what? I said, right now where in the model they're showing the crane. I said, it's all mud. I'm like, how are we getting the crane in? And he's like, Oh shoot. He goes, I better tell you. He's like, you stay there. I better tell <laughs> And so I, I, I tell that story to summarize, like my, I learned in the field. Right. And so like when I think of running projects, I'm like, I need to be able to control and, and have, it's the same concept. It's like, if I can't see around the corner and I've got a new Mason, like how do I know he's laying out the project? Right. And how do I know I have enough material? And if, if I had to get the project done a week earlier, what are the levers that I can pull? So it started really fundamental and I was able to grow into it. So I think that was the seed or the root was running projects and then managing multiple crews, right? Because I went from one job to then now I sit above it. I'm managing eight, nine, 10 different crews and projects. Like what are the levers that I can pull to do better or ultimately to screw it up? Like what are the, what are the controls that I have? And then I just carried that into the cockpit, if you will, when I was when I took over the business and I'm like, okay, I'm driving this machine. Well, if you drive a machine, you need a gas, like you need, you need levers and you need optics. Like my car tells me how fast I'm going, but like how fast is my business going? I can't see any of this right now. I love that angle on it. Cause it's, you know, 
it seems like so many business owners they it's what they're at the mercy of whatever is a problem at the given moment so you know whatever's whatever's hurting they start diving in and trying to work on it and as you alluded to typically it's too late to avoid some real tough pain at that point um but you're asking a question you know much earlier on of do i simply have influence over this or not whether it's going well or poorly at the moment um you know, it's the example I think of is a lot of our customers, they've had great last couple of years because it's remodeling, post-COVID remodeling boom. And they're, you know, they're enjoying it. They're living off of it, getting fat and happy. Um, but then you start talking to some of them and, you know, they've had record-breaking years, um, but they're spending, you know, they, they don't even know what they're spending on marketing. And in reality, it's, you know, a percent at, at best. And it's like, you, all you're doing is riding the wave, man. And, and when this wave dies, you've got, you've got nothing. So at least, you know, those companies that are established and know what they're doing and yeah, they're, uh, they're capitalizing on it too, but they have systems in place and they're spending 10% of their revenue on marketing. And at least they know they're actually driving their ship at that point rather than just getting blown around aimlessly and yeah, doing well when everyone's doing well. Um, and doing poorly when everyone's doing poorly. And I think the the industry is, you know, our, our construction as a whole is very is very unforgiving. It's like the weather, right? It's like you can have sunshine or you can have a tornado. I mean, I saw, I started when it was the yellow pages and I saw the evolution onto like websites and the companies who got those first um, and then people who jumped on SEO. So their website ranked and, and I saw how unforgiving this industry could be to the people who didn't pay attention. I mean, I remember we had a big competitor who spent tons of money in the yellow page, two full page ads. And at the time we typically did like a quarter page ad and they got wiped out. Like we jumped on online stuff fairly early on. And I mean, they were wiped out. I remember when we were hiring their, their people, right. It was like, boom, their number one person, 10 years. And, and I remember seeing and going, wow, this is wild. Or in 2008, when I saw people who relied heavily on word of mouth, you know, I sat at the table when my dad got asked to give, you know, $250,000 loan to one of his friends who had an electrical company and he's in tears and I'm sitting there with him, you know, so I was fortunate enough to be traumatized at a young age and realize like our industry is like the weather and it's like there, there's needs to be a certain level of respect and, and the, the, the smart business leaders that I study are most worried when it's sunshine and rainbows. Like that's when they're the most worried because at, at, at which point it starts to rain they go, well, I prepared for this. And the harder it rains, the more they go, well, yeah, I reinforced the roof. You know, my house is strong. I flood proof my basement and they're ready. And they know that if the, the, the golden that the golden, uh, lesson in that is they go, well, I, if I can survive this storm, which will eventually come, so to speak, and I come out stronger, there's so many people who aren't prepared for that. And, and I've just, I've seen so many companies that are on top, I mean, you could do it with anything. You look at music, you look at film, you look at like nobody's on top forever. So the first question, as soon as you make ground is ask yourself, how can I stay on top? Who's coming after me? And what are the problems that are going to come up? And if you can't see them, then that's a blind spot. Because I mean, even the most famous musical, musical artists in the world, they're not, they're not, you don't stay on the billboard top 100 forever. So, you know, what's going to pull you down? Gravity is a real thing in this world. Exactly. What, what goes up comes down. It's inevitable. So you got to be prepared and re to be resilient through all of those. That's powerful for sure. Um, so now before we, that's all love learning about your business. And I want to dive in here then to this, uh, the contractor consultants and hear more about how you're then taking all these lessons and, and trying to help 
um, you know, so many other folks with those. But uh, one thing I did want to ask first, I was listening to a podcast, another podcast that you were on, and uh, you mentioned that um, Dabara Masonry is still going strong, still owning that, uh, has that, you know, leading masonry company there in L.A. Uh, You mentioned that at this point you've uh, got a team under you that pretty much handles uh, all the day to day that lets you be on construction disruption and whatever other ventures that you're you're working on. So I'm curious what what have been the keys to to building that such a capable team that you can trust. You know, it's, that's the dream for so many business owners, right? So how have you been able to achieve that? One of the big things was establishing the things that we were going to get rid of versus the things we we wanted to keep. Like even as we grew, you know, nine ten crews, we wanted to keep that family feel. So that was one of the things we we latched onto. Um, so clarity of like what our culture is and what it means to be, what is the bar masonry? What does that mean from a client perspective? And what does it mean internally? Cause those aren't always, it's like a two way mirror. They're not always the same thing. Um, technology was a big one and optics being able to the, see a lot of business owners. Like if I look at me three years ago, my, my, uh, reason for not pulling away was two things. Number one, I didn't have optics and number two, I didn't empower. So I couldn't like, I didn't want to create distance with my project managers or my management staff because I didn't have the optics, which by right then meant I didn't want to empower them to do. And because if I can monitor their mistake, it's almost like being a pilot and seeing the course of the other plane and being like, okay, they're one degree off course. We'll let them go. Let's see if they correct. Okay. They're two degrees off course. Okay. They're seven. I need to jump in. If you don't have that, you, you want to hold the levers forever. So I created a way in which I could measure and monitor things from a distance and then that gave me the confidence to empower. And I think far, far too many leaders and, and business owners and managers, you know, it's like you read a leadership book and it's like empower your people and give them the keys to the, you know, kingdom and let them do that. It's like, yeah, that's great. But like, if I lose, you know, $500,000, I'm out. This person has the ability to tank my company. So right. it looks good on paper, but what do I do? So for me, it was, it was the optics, like, even right down to our team events, like we'll record those. So like when we do our award stuff, like once a month, everyone gets together, we record it and I get to watch that. So I'm not the overbearing owner who's there, but like I get to see it. I get to call out certain people. I get to say, Hey, I saw what you did. It was a great job. So it, it's really asking yourself, how do I have the optics, which is how can I measure what's happening and spot things quickly? And then once I do that, how am I then empowering people to take more and more individual ownership so that they can build their careers through the business. I mean, in high level essence, that was the key key. And then hiring, which I mean, I'm sure we'll get into, but hiring the right people and having control of the hiring and confidence around it. Uh, do you mind sharing some more of the nitty gritty details on those optics? What are the tools you're using or the disciplines you're using in order to maintain that visibility? Yeah. So uh, financially, I mean, I get financial reports, you know, once or twice a week. Uh, I get to see, I get you know, my CRM, which is like the brain of our company. I get to see how much work we've sold, how many appointments we've booked. I get to see, you know, customer, how many review requests we've sent out, how much work we've done. Uh, we report on everything. So like my pro- production manager will do a forecast of like hiring needs. So every Tuesday meeting, he looks up, does, does what's called a two month look ahead. How many people do we need to hire based on the work coming in? So it's, it's getting departments to self-regulate. So like in the old days, when I was involved in sales and production, it was easy for me to be like, okay, I have this huge project that's going to land. I need to start hiring. When you pull yourself out, now it's like department A is like, yeah, I'm crushing it in sales. But department B is like, well, I didn't know that I needed to start hiring three months early. Like you didn't tell me you had this $2 million project that was coming in. So it's, 
it's the optics around all the departments. I mean, we have honest employee audits. We do team breakfast. So I'm constantly monitoring like how happy is my team. Uh, we do these company branded poker chips that we give out for like good uh, things that we want to see more of. And they get to spin this wheel, really like really cool prizes they win. And so I track how many of those we give out, what we give them out for. I track what's called process improvement meetings. So if you're management at my company and there's an issue, you as a manager are, are required to have a process improvement meeting. So we always blame the process before the person. I'm going to assume that the process broke down before I believe that my person broke down, that there was something that they, before I, I assume human error. So I'll read those reports. How many meetings did we have? Um, I mean, gosh, I just, I try and get optics on all the, all the key areas from like marketing to then sales to then, you know, the handoff into production and then how many jobs, how fast, how many crews, and then client satisfaction, you know, surveying clients at the end reviews. And, and I just look at it a circle. Like if you follow a lead, the easiest way to do this, if you're listening is take, take your, your marketing uh, efforts and then just track that customer journey. Imagine it's your perfect lead and track that journey all the way through. And those are all the touch points that you want to typically measure. Awesome. Love those process improvement meetings. How are, are those kind of booked as needed when there is a failing or something slips through the cracks or is that both, you know, scheduled regularly and as needed or what's, what's the system there? Yeah. So they're impromptu. So th this came about about three years ago when there was a disconnect between management and field staff and everyone had different sides of the story. And I realized the root issue was communication. And so I told management, I said, look, I can't go to bat for you if, if I don't have information essentially. Right. And I, and I also can't go to bat if I only have one side of the story. So we came up with this philosophy. It's always process, not person until proven otherwise, just like in our legal system, right? Innocent until proven guilty. We say process until proven person. That's an <laughs> internal silly joke we have. And uh, the way it works is if something happens, right, that affects, you know, bottom line or culture or whatever it may be, it's a conversation. So they sit down. It's what happened? What went wrong? What can we do differently? And they both sign it. Well, what's nice about that is I get the written perspective of both people. So now the person in the field is just as valued as the manager. They get to write out what they think happened. And sometimes those two things don't agree, right? It's like, no, I didn't forget the, you know, uh, to pick up the cement mixer. I wasn't told by X, Y, Z. And, and, but you get it in writing and it forces a conversation. And what's also nice about it is, uh, you know, if management is like, hey, I'm struggling, this person's been giving me a hard time and da, da, da. Okay, great, let's audit. How many process improvement meetings have we had with them? Well, we haven't had any in the last month. Oh, so this has been happening for two months. The three things you just mentioned, but we never took the time to sit down formally and really dive into what's happening. Ah, oh, you're right, Matt. All right, let me do a process improvement meeting. I'll, I'll stay on this. It's now accountability for your management team. And but what's nice is it's a double-sided coin because then I'll have some managers that are, you know they'll they'll hit they'll go to my ops manager and be like, look, this is the seventh time in the last two months that I've sat with this person. Here's all of them. Here's the reasons. Like we got to figure this out. And now my ops manager can go, okay. I, I can support this now and also analyze the data. Is there a certain pattern or trend? And we found things where it's like, we found we've needed to create positions in the company. Like we've outgrown certain things. Like we'll look at it and be like, oh wait, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. We need somebody at the yard, like a second junior person who's making sure all these things happen. Ah, like it's just, it's another layer of optics. I think for many people listening, you 
you know, that's just one component of that you just rattled off of all these systems that you've put in place that allow the organization just to thrive, people to be happy, all those things. So I think that's probably a easy lead into the contractor consultants. You start would love to hear about you starting that and then, you know, what uh, how you come alongside and help people identify the first building blocks of the multi-year process to get to where, yeah, you just described you folks are. Yeah, I mean, we primarily focus on on hiring. Um, you know, and, and the business came out of necessity. I f- didn't follow my own rules in, in 2019, roughly. I think it was end of 2018. And I, uh, so I was like the American dream. I was doing, I think, three celebrity homes. I was doing a big government project and I wasn't paying attention to my team talking about hiring. It wasn't an optic that we had really clearly defined as well as we do now. And so I was the victim of, of the same storm that I mentioned earlier. Uh, lost nearly a million dollars in the course of just a couple weeks. I mean, it was it was messy. Jobs falling apart, like losing projects left and right because we didn't have the the right staff. And so the business was born out of me really spending time to figure out what's this hiring system look like? What's the new version of hiring? Um, so I ended up after about a year and a half, two years, figured out a system. Then I helped my friends and contractors I knew, then trade associations, then we built a course, uh, partnered with ZipRecruiter and Indeed um, on basically showing business owners how to find, vet, hire, and and retain top talent. Um, and then from there, went on to basically doing that entire system for contractors if they don't have the time to go through the course and do it on their own. So going back to the start of that, yeah, start of that process, your own tough experience with that, um, was sounds like you know, typical scenario of sales just outpacing production and getting in the deep end and then going sideways? Yeah, sales outpaced it. And the ways we were hiring it, you know, for us, it was like we had certain subcontractors. I knew certain, you know, small business owners, one or two people. Like we always had ways to, to flex what we call flex our, our production. And they just weren't working. And my team kept knocking and being like, hey, Matt, a little bit of an issue. You know, so-and-so's busy. I'm like, all right, we'll call this person. All right, call them. They're busy. All right, we'll post an ad on Craigslist. All right, we didn't get any hits. All right, well, then go to Indeed. You know the drill. Let's post on Indeed. We did that three times and nothing happened. Oh, okay. Now we're in trouble, right? Because we're still selling as if all those things are working. Um, And what I realized is there's no one size fits all to hiring. For example, I think we have 37 different ways to find, proven ways to find candidates. And those go all the way from like, uh, incentivizing your team members to go out and find people for you to high skilled digital strategies like geofencing your competitors and building referral partnerships with your suppliers, right? Because they come in contact with your potential candidates. Um, one strategy that listeners can implement is if you're looking for those hard to find, like high skilled foremen or project leads or whatever, you know, whatever the industry is that you'd call it, um, a lot of times they have a company truck they're gainfully employed, right? They're already working. They're not looking for work. We've uh, shown our clients how to approach your suppliers and offer to sponsor free coffee and donuts during the busiest two hours every morning. And in exchange for that, put a recruiting card on that table. And so that one day that, you know, John, who's been working at XYZ company for 10 years, he's waiting for his truck to get loaded up. And he got yelled at for being three minutes late because, you know, his daughter was sick, let's say looks down and sees this card. It says how much they're paying, what they're doing. There's a QR code you can scan and it's a way to get in front of your can. That's like one active, easy strategy that you can use of probably 200 we have. Wow. That's awesome. 
and this, you know, the issue with hiring skilled labor shortage, it comes up pretty much every single episode of people talking about that just being the biggest challenge facing our industry. So, yeah, give us more on don't expect you to spill all the secret sauce. But what's that process look like? What are the keys and, um, you know, in any stories along the way of how you how you figured that out? Well, it's so interesting because at the end of the day, what you're really after is a full team and amazing culture. Right. Like like the best companies that you and I, if we're going to talk about companies that you and I both know, right, you're in Ohio, I'm in Los Angeles. Those companies typically have a really great culture because mm. that's how you retain and maintain your team, excite them, motivate them and the like. And the problem is, is a lot of construction business owners can't enforce their culture because of scarcity. Right. Mike was late for the third time. Well, you know the rule. It's in the handbook. We got to fire him. Well, if we fire him, we can't finish this job tomorrow. We're going to lose 50 grand. All right, well, then don't fire him. We'll figure it out later. Right? Like <laughs> right. we're yeah. in this weird situation, you know? And and so we we need amazing culture to build a longstanding, long-term company. But the the Tylenol, so to speak, is to sacrifice culture just to get stuff done. So what do you got? What do you have to do? You have to have control over your ability to find candidates. You need, like I talked about in the course, you need a massive find list right? Tons of candidates. But then when you do that, you need a way to vet them or quickly sift, sort and screen because like this happened to me when I finally figured out like right now for our clients, we post to 157 job boards, right? We've got a way to do that. We've got uh, ways to, um, I mean, all sorts of different things. But when, when you build a robust list of candidates, you need ways to quickly sift, sort and screen because you can't do a traditional one hour interview for everybody. Oh, sure. Yeah. So in, in essence, you know, looking at the type of role, uh, posting to lots of different job boards. It takes keyword testing, headline testing. Um, you need certain screener questions to be able to bring great candidates to the back of the line right away, right? You need to get them right, right to the, or not the back of the line, the back of the process. Because if I'm amazing and I just moved here, let's say I moved from Ohio to LA and you're like a dream candidate, you're going to find work within the first week. So if you come in and I've got this very lengthy hiring process and you do a screener and then you do this and I don't have a way to skip the line, like we have ways in which it's like, if they're perfect, boom, they go right to final interview and then, and then they have a skills assessment. So there's a lot, but in essence, if I can tell you, if you don't have an ability to build a really big list of candidates, that's your first problem. Then you got to figure out how to vet them quickly. Um, then there's a question of like, well, do I send them the offer letter and they shop it to their current employer? right? And get a $10,000 raise and never even have to leave. So there's ways to do that. And we have some of the content available online. There's a, there's a lot, it's a system like baking a cake, but those are in essence, some of the key areas you can focus on. So I would think that so many people that you're coming in contact with have just lost all faith and, you know, that there's, there's enough candidates to even build a big list in the first place. But I had no idea there was 137 different job boards out there though, either. So, um, it's got to just be a matter of variety of how you're getting into contact with people, but also like you mentioned, getting creative because the best candidates are likely going to be working somewhere else currently. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it, a lot of times we'll, we'll do calls with, with construction business owners and they'll be like, there's no good people out there. And I'll say, great. When your client goes online and they go to find you, who are the other two companies that are likely to call? And unless it's a one, one man band and a pickup truck, then there's some people out there. And typically in every market, you can take the smallest town in Massachusetts or Ohio, it doesn't matter where you are. Typically there's two, three, four other people. Um, so that's a big part of it. In some markets we find, you know what? You are pretty dry. 
you know, you really in your, your local area. But at that point, it's like, well, then how, how do you have the people you have right now? Well, you know, Jim, I came out of high school and I trained him up in three years and now he's great. Okay, well, then that's what we need to look at. We need to look at bringing people in and making sure that we can retain them. Why don't you have more gyms? Well, you know, I had Tom and Tom worked for me for two months and then you know, he quit. Well, why did he quit, right? It's the retention model now. So it's bringing people in, but we really need to safeguard that retention because what you don't want is to train someone for six months, get them decent, and now they're working at your competitor and you did them a favor after you spent all the money and time. So it's it's different for local markets, but I would say across the board, uh, companies are surprised at how many people are available when you put enough of the feelers out and you're doing the geofencing, the partner lists, you're incentivizing your current team members to go out. Like giving your current team members either a cash or some other type of incentive. Ideally, it's unique, meaning one-to-one. Like if I know uh, John works for me and he's a big Patriots fan, let's say, hey, I'll get you tickets to your favorite game if you find XYZ position. If you can deputize your current team, you'll be amazed at what they, who they know, how they know them, who they can bring into your team. It's just one simple strategy uh, to get you the right people without you having to do all the heavy lifting. All of that comes down to getting creative and thinking about doing things differently than you've you've always done them right so uh one saying that we've been kicking around here lately it's yeah if you are perfectly designed to get the results you're getting today so if you want different results we start have to do do things differently but you know i think some of the companies we work with and here in these challenges of skilled labor you know sometimes my first thought is you have less of a labor problem than you do of, of a sales problem. Your your margin is too low to give you that flexibility of buying the Patriots tickets or, you know, investing in these new systems. So does that come up with some of your clients too? Yeah. I mean, you, you have to have a situation where, and that's like, if, if you, my journey, for example, like I figured out the marketing first and then hiring was later. Um, you have to have the margins in place to do that. If, if you can't give, well, it's also a clear understanding because if you really track and have the metrics around like how many jobs did you not bid because you didn't have the right people in the field or how many projects went over because you didn't have enough or enough of the right people. So when you start measuring these optics, we even have clients with really tight margins, like real tight commercial margins, let's say, or in the residential space. And they find if they just look at the optics a little bit differently, they go, oh, wow, you're right. It is costing me a lot. You know, this project went, you know, 15% over budget because I didn't have enough, you know, I didn't have enough laborers that could feed my installers. Right. And if I did, things would have gone a lot faster and they would have got so burnt out would have been less overtime. So if you look at overtime, you look at job cost overruns and you look at how many projects you either lost or couldn't bid or didn't want to bid because you were full. I mean, those are all indicators that it actually is saving you money to heavily incentivize your hiring. Are you finding that does this very much trade to trade uh, or any uh, feedback there on whether looking for roofers looks really different than Masons versus, you know, uh, yeah, window installers? The only thing we've seen is that like the real, real like Masons, for example, where there's a long apprenticeship program where it takes a long time or concrete, for example, concrete finishers is a little bit more difficult. The, the the trades and fields where you can train somebody quickly, like roofing, for example, is a dream for us. Uh, roofing, painting, um, you know, those those types of trades work really well. We do great with masonry companies too. We've noticed it's just, a, we have to go a little bit wider and a little bit deeper to get the same results we would for like a roofing company or a painting company or a general labor, uh, you know, like window cleaning, for example. 
um, those types of companies. But it's the interesting thing is I had a mentor early, early on, a marketing mentor. And he said, the biggest marketing travesty for companies is not knowing how high is high. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, like how much money you could be making. He says, so many times I'll work with a company like you, Matt. And he said, they're making 20% net margins or, you know, 25 or 15, right? And he said, and we could find ways to make them 40% or 45. And they don't even know that it's possible. He says, I know it because I'm a marketing consultant and I'm very good at it. And I know how to find these levers and do this. He said, but that's the biggest thing. And I think hiring for a lot of construction business owners is that next blind spot because it's like until you've, I mean, it was for me, until you really have the system and you and you have everything working and you can find vet, hire, meaning get the offer letter out and get them to accept and then retain, you don't know how many people are available. I didn't know. I never would have imagined my own masonry company that I could have as many quality, talented people as I do now, I had no idea until I really started figuring this out. And I think that's the biggest, biggest opportunity for business owners listening is like the candidates are out there. They want to work. It's just what business owners are going to invest the time, the energy and the money to find them. But if you do that, the people there's roofing industry specific, there's no better time in history than to own a, and have a great company with a great team of people it's the most valuable asset you can have. No longer, when we're looking at the acquisition model right now, so many of the acquisitions are built around the team. Like they don't even care about pipeline. The big acquisition companies are eating up smaller companies, two people, 20 people, 100 people, just for the team. Because they're going, for me to go out, find and and incorporate these people on my own is a nightmare. So it's like, it's the payoff on top of the payoff if you put in the work. So what does that look like for your company right now? Does that um, you've got a full-time team devoted to this day in and day out, or is this something you pull the lever more? You mentioned the two uh, two month forecast earlier. Um, so yeah, what's the, or is it something you pull the lever and just um, ramp it up when you need it? What does that look like? Well, we're, we're into like organic growth now. So we're, we're kind of, we're in a very nice spot where we kind of keep the floodgates open. We're always screening candidates, but we're not in like a hiring, like I need somebody right away. We typically have a waiting list of, you know, candidates that might require a little bit more training than we may or may not want to invest in right away. But um, we've gotten to a point where it's like maintenance mode. If you think of like an exercise example, it's like, you know, it's hard work to get to that peak physical condition. And then once you've perfected nutrition, working out and all those things, it's like, you're kind of like maintenance mode, autopilot. You just go to the gym three times a week. You're just maintaining we're at that point. It's the hard part is to go from hiring crisis, which is typically also culture crisis, right? Cause like when those two things coexist, you can't enforce good culture. It's impossible. Like you just can't because mm-hmm. then you'd have, you know, it's just, it's a slippery slope downwards. Um, so it's like fixing your culture, getting your hiring up to a point where you understand locally the market, the model that works for you. And then when you do, you get to this beautiful place called maintenance mode where it's like, I keep my hiring going. Uh, you know, if somebody happens to move to my area or maybe a business shuts down, like you have your floodgates open to capture people, but you're not in this dying. I mean, we just had somebody, my team alerted me to somebody who just shut down their own company. Right. I mean, we don't, we weren't like actively in need of this position, but we got an awesome candidate because he's like, I'm done. He's like, I had family stuff. I'm working too much on my own. It's too hard to sell work right now. I just want to go work for somebody. Well, we were ready and waiting. You know, we had our net wide open, boom. And they, they, they came in. So that's like the ultimate, ultimate payout for business owners. And then the, the, you've got that hidden benefit of like, 
you have the asset that everybody wants. You have the ability to perform the work. Yeah, you mentioned all this goes hand in hand with culture. So was there companies out there, our industry or otherwise, that you uh, look to as examples for what what you wanted to build and what have been the key principles for that for you folks? Culture comes down to a couple of things. Um, one of the big ones is communication. If you look at companies with poor culture, there's typically poor communication, meaning I could be saying things that aren't nice, right? Harmful things. I mean, I got, I got, I grew up in the business where like we used to see fist fights on the job. We used to see, you know, it was like the, the bigger mistake I made growing up when I was young, the louder I got yelled at. So I do like if my dad really yelled, I was like, oh, that's a big one. I better get there quick. <laughs> like, that's how I grew up. <laughs> the, the industry's changed so much uh, now, especially because you're incorporating like, the old timers that we used to, my dad used to call, you know, we had an old timer, Mason, um, who was in his 70s, probably 20 years ago when I was really starting out. And so it's you're integrating like younger people who know tech with people who have really earned their stripes in the industry. And so like the the ultimate important thing is, is good communication. Like we spend a lot of time looking at um, it's 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 communication and team building, right? How do I, how do I incorporate elements of fun in the business and things like that? So specifically what that looks like is uh, one strategy is an honest employee audit. So we recommend either monthly or quarterly. Uh, we've have a framework, but you're essentially on a one to 10 scale anonymously surveying key areas of satisfaction. So like on a scale of one to 10, how valued do I feel my input is, you know, to my manager uh, when I give it, right? Or like, you know, how how fair do I feel my pay is, right? And you'd be amazed. I mean, you get these reports back and we talk to owners and we're like, how confident are you this is going to be good? Oh, my team is amazing. They love it. They're happy. Okay. We get it back a couple areas, you know, it might be pay, it might be communication around, you know, job delays, things like that. You find there there's opportunities. So anonymous communication, open communication, like those on, or like the um, process improvement meetings are huge. And the like once you get the baseline, which is just getting people to talk because nobody quits the day they quit. Right. Like, you know, it's like I quit. It's like, no, you didn't quit today. You quit three weeks ago and you were just waiting for that last little thing to happen that you quit. So if we know that we know that if I can catch it early enough, I can solve almost any problem. So one thing we do is if somebody new comes in, really good onboarding plan. Right. Who do they go see? What are they especially the first two weeks? Do they have everything they need to be successful? Then we mandate it's uh, it's three reviews in the first basically four months. So you get a two-week review, a 30-day review, and a 90-day review. So three reviews. All of these are eligible for a raise. I've had people in the span of four months get three raises. Like it's actually fairly common because the next thing we do is we are very clear about expectations. So now that we've eliminated the burden of I got to bring you in the office to talk to you. It's like, well, no, it's not weird because on day one, we're like, so, you know, two weeks from now, you'll be back here. And then after that, again, in 30 days and after that 90, now it's not weird anymore. I'm not bringing you in the office. After we've established that, now we get really clear during those meetings on how you get an A. Because if you bring A-level talent, they feed off of getting A's. Like they are like the, I want the pat on the backs. And so our job as, as business managers is to clearly define how do you get an A? So in these reviews, we're like, hey, you did amazing in these four things. We're really a stickler about time. I know it was 7.03. You're supposed to be there at 7. No big deal. But like, if you could really get there at 7 or earlier, like that's our culture. No problem. Because we've opened the channel up. 
instead of having to like pull them aside and be like, Hey, can I talk to you? So this whole 703 thing, it's not where it's like, you're making a big, heavy thing out of something that could be casual in a pre-planned meeting. Um, so the communication's big. And then the other thing, uh, with culture, two other things is, uh, team building. So, uh, and then, and then team structuring and they're different. So team building is like events for the whole company or events for departments where you really bring everybody together and it's close team structuring is where you're looking at, okay, I've got this young person and they got a lot of energy and they just, they go a million miles an hour, but they're not super clean. I'm not going to put them with somebody who has no patience. Cause if I put them with someone who's got no patience, he's going to tell them once, tell them twice, I want to fire. Like, <laughs> right. you know, like that was like my dad in the field, you know, like I would never put that guy out. I would, if I did that, I'd be like, guarantee they're gone in, in a week. So we spend a lot of time crafting teams. So as soon as something doesn't work out and I have a crew of six, eight, 10 people, I'm immediately like, well, were they with the wrong team? You know, did I put them on the wrong team? Did I misstructure the way they needed to be located within the organization? Hmm. Um, and, uh, and those are just some of the actionable strategies. Excellent stuff, man. So I love hearing your passion and just the intentionality that you've approached your own business and really our industry now. Um, yeah, letting so many other people benefit from it. So what what is that next step and process for if uh, someone is listening and, and understanding that they need hiring culture beyond help and that uh, thinks the contractor consults it? consultants can help uh, what would that process look like for them i mean typically we we start with just reaching out to us um you know website's great online um through the website is, is probably the easiest fastest schedule a call and then we just we look at your market where you are um and there's probably a good chance we can help I and mean, we've, we've figured out you know we have a pretty good framework and and what's nice about what we do is everything escalates so we i, I can't sit here and say we're definitely going to do this in this time frame but we've got an escalation process. Some markets are really easy. We, st we start with step one and two and we're, we're getting great results. Um, but what we we're trying to do is we, we handle the biggest problem for business owners, which is I don't have the time to do this, but I know I need to do it. So like the business owner, we do all the job postings. We do all of the headline testing, the weekly reporting. So that business owner is just showing up to final vetted, approved interviews. That's it. Wow. So like all of the like job boards, all of the screenings, our team gets to the average candidate and think, uh, as of last week, it was four minutes. You apply within four minutes, we're contacting you. So, you know, it's, it's, we take care of all of that so that the business owner can do what they're good at, which is if I got somebody who is all pre-qualified, they get to qualify them that second half. And then we handle the hiring letters, the, uh, you know, drug screen, like all of that coordination for them. So it's a really, really neat service that I, that we've had great success with. That time to conversation, it reminded me, one of our customers uh, a couple of weeks ago was telling me that just on a whim, he started experimenting that uh, rather than call up the, uh, the candidate, try to schedule him a week later for an in-person interview, you know, it became, hey, can you jump on a Zoom call in an hour? Not an hour? Okay, two this afternoon? Let's do it. And um, just really ramped up uh, their success rate and just... Yeah, getting into a good conversation quicker and taking them out of the the uh, pool for everyone else to try to capture. So it's awesome. Well, good deal, Matt. Uh, thank you so much. I think we're getting close to kind of the end of um, what we call the business end of things here. Uh, but one thing I did want to ask you, uh, one last question was, you know, obviously as a still young person building a 
really impressive career in this industry that we all love and, and care a lot about. Um, what, what words of advice, what would you say to another person, you know, at that stage in life who uh, is evaluating where to invest their career and uh, construction uh, in one way or another is, is on the table for consideration? I mean, I'm a huge proponent of this industry. I think there's no better time to be involved in construction. I think that we're going to see artificial intelligence integrate nicely. But last I checked, ChatGPT is not laying bricks or, <laughs> or installing roofs. So I think we're at, we're at a great juncture in history. And the people that get involved now and can embrace the, uh, the evolution that we're going to see, it's, it's going to be remarkable. And not just that, but I think that we're going to find that the, the industry is going to change and growth if you enter this industry is going to be so fast, in my opinion. I think you're going to have an opportunity to accelerate so quick in this industry because we need new talent. We need new ideas. We need young energy um, that if I was a young person considering, it, I mean, no brainer. If you're ready to get stuff done and get excited about doing something, you're going to sift to the top quickly because there's such a such a need for it. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, before we wrap up uh, completely, was there anything else that you wanted to mention or talk about or uh, share with our audience today? No, other than just spending more time focusing on hiring. You know, really one of the most fundamental things you can do is is just take your week and say, how much time did we spend focusing on hiring genuinely? Like really diving in and focusing it and measuring it and treating it like we do sales or some of the other key areas. Um, and that's the first big step. And then if you're doing that consistently and you're struggling, well, then you need to change your approach. You might need someone like us or somebody else out there. But for a lot of business owners, it's just literally time. It's like you got to block out. You got to do it because it's it's something that pays off not only today, tomorrow, but many, many years down the line. And like you said, for your own company, if you're not at a position where you need to go out and hire 20 people, that doesn't change that you need to be focusing on that lever if you needed to hire 20 people, could you? Uh, and, start, and if you hire 20 people, does your culture breed a, you know, an environment that people would want to stay? Or are they going to be gone in six weeks after that? Um, and just starting to build the groundwork from there. It's awesome. Well, we, we are not going to let you go before we ask if you're willing to participate in something a little more fun here at the end that we do called our rapid fire questions. Uh, so just to allow the audience to get to know you a little bit better. We have seven uh, ranging from silly to serious questions that we uh, like wrapping up for. As always, those listening, Matt has not seen this or did not get any warning ahead of time. But uh, are you up for it? The rapid fire yeah. questions? Yeah. Awesome. So we'll alternate asking those here. Ryan, if you want to go first, you can take us away. Sure. I'd be happy to. Question number one, when you're not working, how do you like to spend your time? With family and traveling. Traveling like far traveling or just going places in general? U.S., U.S. and then and then international. New places. Cool. Love it. Cool. New places. What's, what's next on your list? Do you have a bucket list one you're working towards now? I want to spend some time in Greece. I'm Italian, so I've done Italy a lot, but Greece is like kind of like the cousin that I, you know, didn't really get to see. So. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Question number two. Well, we just asked you like four questions in the first one, but the second rapid fire question. If you had to eat one food for every meal going forward, what would you eat? I mean, I'm a pasta guy. There you go. No yeah, surprise there, sure. really, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Question number three, what is the last job or career that you would ever want to have? 
Oh, data analyst. Like just analyzing yeah. data. <laughs> Cold sterile spreadsheets for hours on end. Doesn't doesn't seem like that would fit. Yeah. For if you could pick a superpower, what would it be? Inspiring others to see their true potential. Beautiful. That's a good one. Question number five. If someone were to play you in a movie, who would you want it to be? You know, if I if I could do it like a future me, I'd have George Clooney play it. <laughs> I'd have him, <laughs> Robert De Niro, I'd have one of them. I'd have him fight it out first and see if like, whoever wants can play me. <laughs> <laughs> I like that question. What product or service have you purchased recently that you would consider life-changing? Oh, you know what? I just purchased. It's so funny you say this. I'm, I'm traveling right now. I purchased a really small uh, power inverter that like is uh, so cigarette lighter to outlet so I could work in the car, but like a small one. Life change. I'm going to take it with me. Every- so it has like an actual plug? Like yeah. a, uh, is it on Amazon? I'm assuming. Yeah. Because we had a need for one of those recently. And I was like, why, why haven't I ordered that on Amazon? Like, why don't, or why don't cars just come with that now? But anyways, okay, final question. Uh, this one's a little more serious. What would you like to be remembered for? I probably gave it away with my superpower, but uh, inspiring others to, to see how, how high is high. Like my, my earlier mentor taught me when I was really getting into all this. Well, well on your way to that. And thank you for uh, fulfilling that partly with this time here today with us. Uh, really enjoyed really enjoyed it. Uh, for those that do want to get in touch with you, Matt, what's the best way to do that? Um, you can email us, uh, Matt D at the contractor concession sales, me, Matt D at the contractor consultants.com or uh, the website. Awesome. So well, thank you again. And thank you listeners for tuning into this episode of Construction Disruption with Matt Debarra with Debarra Masonry and the Construction Consultants. Again, the constructionconsultants.com. Please watch for future episodes of the podcast. We are always blessed with great guests. And if you would, don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or YouTube. Uh, until next time, uh, we're together. Keep on disrupting and uh, challenging the status quo. God bless and take care. This is Isaiah Industries signing off until the next episode of Construction Disruption. This podcast is produced by Isaiah Industries, manufacturer of specialty metal roofing and other building products.